0: There we go. Hope everyone is having a good Easter. Hope a good day with family and friends, and of course, just a great day of worship, a great day with our church family, because we have a great day with worshiping with our family and our friends, but also with our church family every Sunday. So I'm glad to see everyone here. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 52 and 53. That's what we found on page 729 of the Red Pew Bible in front of you. And I know you're going to put a marker in there because we're not going to have any slides for Isaiah 53. I really want us to pay attention to the words that are in this book, in your Bible, in Isaiah 53. Really pay attention to them because Isaiah 53 is an infamous passage in the Bible. Now, I personally have never heard a sermon on Isaiah 53 alone. but I don't get out much. I'm sure you guys have. But... Really, we see it a lot at the Lord's Supper. We have people memorize this passage. We see people read it every Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of God's word and probably one of the best Old Testament passages when it comes to talking about this coming Messiah. And interestingly enough, it talks about this Messiah not as a king, as many in Jesus' generation would expect him to be, but instead as this, this lamb, as Nate talked about this morning. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53 says this lamb to be slaughtered or sacrificed. And Nate went on to make that point. But no one wants to be described as a lamb. It's almost, it's almost insulting when the Bible calls us sheep. We're like, I don't want to be sheep. I remember telling myself as a kid, I don't want to be sheep. I want to be like a behemoth and Leviathan. I want to be something cool. I want to be strong. And then I didn't get any taller. So, so there we go. Just, uh, sheep it is. But we grow up, right? We as adults, we make mistakes. And we see that the Bible is accurate in what it says as sheep. We are sheep. But Jesus is described as a lamb. And nothing grabs our attention about that. There's no pride in being a lamb. And that's the point here. Isaiah 53, look at verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. We see people all the time depict Jesus. They may could claim that he, they saw Jesus or paint Jesus, but he's a handsome guy, it seems good, there's no callus on his hands, but that's not what we kind of see alluded to here. We don't know what Jesus looked like, But what we see is that there shouldn't be anything really physically appealing to him. The point is that he should be different. He's different than the kings that we read in the Old Testament. He's different than Saul, who was taller than everyone else, who was handsome. He's different than David, who had beautiful eyes and handsome. Different than Absalom, who was perfect from head to toe. He's different than all those kings. He is the lamb. But you see, he's not just the lamb that was slaughtered. He's also the lamb that lived and continues to live he is the lamb that lives. And that's going to be our focus this morning in this lesson. To see God in the life that Jesus lived and still lives. And notice, they don't just call him a sheep, they call him a lamb. There's a difference between a sheep and a lamb, and we know this difference. There's one difference, and it's what? It's the age of that animal. But if you take that difference and you contrast it, or compare it, I should say, to our own life, we as sheep, we as As adults grow up, we make mistakes, but a lamb is just born. He's pure and he's humble. And that is what the scripture is trying to capture when they call him this lamb. The purity we see even from our own children. And so we read Isaiah 52 and look at verses 13 through 15. Let's preview the sacrifice of this lamb. It says, Behold, for that which has not been told and they see and that which they have not heard, they understood. That is what Isaiah is reminding us of who Jesus will be. He will be a servant who in verse 13, who acts wisely, who in verse 13, a humble servant that we shall lift up and we shall exalt, that shall be exalted, but we shall praise Him and give him glory. And then we think of Jesus' life. I want you to think about that. You read the Gospels. think about Jesus' life. That's a loaded question. What do you think of when you think of his life? What do you think of? There's a lot to think about there. And John looked at him as a servant in his Sermon Sunday. He looked at the servanthood of Jesus and who he was and how he washed the disciples' feet. But if you look at verses 13 and 15 of Isaiah 52 and you put that together, what we see is a servant, a humble servant, who acts wisely that will shut the mouths of kings. What type of servant makes that big of an impact? We have a tendency to think about our life and value our life by the things that we buy, by the amount of Instagram likes that we have, and we value our life by the attention that we have on us, and not the attention that we give to others or even God. We have that tendency. Many of us, when we, look at, when we sit on our deathbed, we look back on our life, do we think about the things that we bought or could have bought or the places we could have been? Many of us think back and look at our life as the attention we should have or did give to others or to God. We hear about our biggest regrets. I should have hung out with this person. I should have spent more time with this person. I should have you know, said this. Where is your attention spent and directed? I think of Jesus' life, and I think of who he was, and he was not a man who lived a life of distractions and was always distracted. His attention was on the mission that he was given and he was totally devoted to God. We look at the Old Testament. We look at the sacrifices that they had to give, the offerings that they gave, and it was this idea of commitment and devotion to God. And that's what the, fact, that's, that's what the burnt offering was all about. And they looked at that this morning. You read Leviticus. You read Leviticus 1 through 7, and you get this idea. It goes into great detail, bloody detail, into some of the offerings, the burr offerings, the, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, all of these. These are not just small things that take lightly. They were sacrifices. They were hard for those people. They were an act of dedication to God. And we see this type of dedication From as early as Genesis 4. We're going to go really fast through some of these scriptures here. In Genesis 4, 4, right? God is pleased with Abel's devotion to him. It says, Abel was also brought of the first one of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had what? Had regard for Abel and his offspring. Or offering. There you go. I said it. And now our lives, you look at our lives today, right? And what are we? We're called to be sacrifices. You're called to give our whole lives to God, and Paul reminds us of this in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That was Jesus' whole life from beginning to end. What we believe about Jesus often determines what we do. And what we see Jesus doing is living for God his entire life. Look at Isaiah 53. Now read with me verses 1 through 3. It says, Who has believed that he has what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at verse 2. It says he grew up out of dry ground. There's nothing in his background that should be appealing to us or appealing to the people then. He was a carpenter. He didn't have a great education. Living life also, not dedicated to God, can seem like we're living in a dry ground. We're not producing anything. We're, we're not growing. Our sin has dried us up. There's nothing left for us, and we don't know where to turn. We, we don't know where to go. But that's not what we see from Jesus. That's not. What would be the point of him growing out of rich soil? Right? We see him growing out of the dry ground because he needs to complete his mission. And we see him say that in Luke 19, verse 10. What is his mission? For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he says, came to seek and save the lost. Where are the lost? The Son of Man, Jesus, the one who took on flesh to be human, the one who grew out of the dry ground, that is his earth, who came to seek and save the lost. And that was his mission from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, when things were going good, they were with God, they were devoted to God, and then in that moment of sin, they became undevoted to God, right? and what was rich became dry ground. And as the Son of God, Jesus came out of that ground, the Son of Man, to make our dry lives rich again. But remember, it couldn't have just been anyone. It had to be someone special. It had to be, as it says in verse 1, it had to be the arm of the Lord. Someone who was wholly dedicated to God to complete this mission. And so when we read Isaiah 53, I want to compare it to some of Jesus' life experiences. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with the Sumerian woman, the woman at the well. And look at verses 7 through 15, 7 through 15. In John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, will be thirsty again. Look at verse 14. This is important. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We want to be dedicated to God the way Jesus was. And that means we need to fill our lives with Jesus. We need to be watering our dry life, this physically fleeting life, with living water. Water, as Jesus says in verse 14, water that never will make us thirsty again. You notice in the first few verses here in verse 12, she's a little skeptical. She asks some questions there. She's not moved by Jesus' appearance. What is she moved by? She's moved by what he says, by who he's all about, by the godly energy that he projects. She is simply moved by his divine saving power. We can be skeptical at times. We've been drinking really awful, poisonous, dirty water. We've been filling our souls with horrible things our whole lives until we meet Jesus. And sometimes we don't know any better. and So we're a little skeptical until we dedicate our lives to him, our whole life to him, and we realize this living water, how much it enriches our souls. This life is full of a lot of pain. Everywhere we look, relationships that we have, wherever we talk to, there's always, there always seems to be someone in some sort of pain. Even the woman here at this well is going through some pain. That's why she's like in verse 15, give me this water. I need this water. Jesus knows that. And he sees that her life is dry and it's empty God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that life. And that is why he sent his son to grow out of this dry ground as a saving plant, if you will. But it's not easy to grow. We've grown anything in West Texas. We know it's very dry. We know it's not easy to grow anything. There's a challenge, and Jesus knows there's a challenge. And Paul expresses this challenge in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, it reads, Jesus though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, look at this, made himself nothing, a lamb, taking on the form of a servant who acted wisely. Remember that? Being born in the likeness of man, who is the son of man. We are, we're not unfamiliar with what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, when he talks about pain and grief and sorrow. And yet it says Jesus was well acquainted with grief and sorrow. We look at his earthly life, and he probably lost his father, Joseph. He lost his cousin, John the Baptist. He lost his good friend, Lazarus. He saw a lot of pain, and that was just a sliver of the amount of pain that he experienced on this earth. Let's look at some of those examples. In Matthew 14, verse 11 through 13, pay attention to how Jesus reacts here. By John the Baptist's murder, John the Baptist's head, it says, was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus now when Jesus heard this he withdrew from there in a boat to a desert place with a bunch of people right? Oh, by himself there's grief there's sorrow there even when he walks up to the tomb where Lazarus lay, and he's going to raise him from the dead it says in John 11 verse 35-36 that Jesus wept he wept And the people who had come to mourn said, look how much he loved him. There's love and there's pain and sorrow there again. And he wept for the people of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verses 41-42. through And when he drew near and saw the city, it says he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What makes for peace? And this is the Prince of Peace saying these things. Not only does... Isaiah say he's acquainted, well acquainted with grief. But he says he's despised and rejected by men in Isaiah 53, verse 3. We've all felt rejection to some degree, to some level, at some point, And that doesn't feel very good. We don't want to be rejected. The other day I was, I was listening to a podcast on addiction. And I think sometimes we get this idea of addiction wrong. where We only think of it as the relationship between the one who uses the drug and the chemical reaction of the drug. And it's that simple. Oftentimes, it's not that simple. It goes way deeper than that. When addiction is caused by the pain in the person's life that he's currently experiencing or has experienced in his past, you see, they're rejected, they're despised, and they turn further into this drug, and they're beat up by life, and they're forgotten, and they don't know where they go. They go to the wrong place, they go to the wrong direction, and they need compassion, they need Jesus, they need that living water, We've all been there. We're in our pain. We decide to turn the wrong way and we walk down the wrong path. We have to be careful not to do that because we're living perhaps a dry life. The point here is to look at what did Jesus do differently? What did he do differently? Because he understood what pain was. understood what grief and, and sorrow was. What did he do differently? Did he turn to the world and the things of this world? No, he always turned to God. He turned to God He was dedicated to God and to God's will. We read in Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 8. It's it's talking about this. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Look at that. With what? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And look at verse 8. Although he was a son, it says he learned. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Are we learning obedience through what we suffer? And how do we do that? How do we do that? That's what we might ask. How do we do that? If we see anything from the life of the Lamb, the Lamb that lives, from Jesus' life, it's consistency. Being consistent, consistently devoted to God, no matter the pain, no matter the situation. And this is what God wants from us. It's what he wants from you and your faith. It's consistency. Moments of suffering don't have to be moments of defeat. And John pointed this out in a verse in Wednesday's class. He looked at Acts 26, verse 20, where Paul gives his testimony. And he tells of what he proclaimed when he proclaimed Jesus. And notice what it says. It says, this is Paul saying that they should repent, and they should turn to God, and those turn to his will, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That idea of keeping shows this idea of consistency, consistently looking for God. That's what God wants for us. We are told to be like Jesus, not necessarily always shooting for perfection, but shooting for consistency, keeping with repentance, showing consistent acts of repentance, and that. That is what shows a good heart, a changed heart, a heart that learns how to be obedient through what we suffer in this life. Jesus didn't have to repent. He was perfect. He was devoted to God in the good times and the bad times. And so we get to the point in Isaiah 53. Look at verses 4 through 6, where God gives the sacrifice for all humanity. and am write some beautiful words here. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. says, Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. We, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That is pain we always reference when we're talking about Jesus, and that's the death on the cross, verse 7, the lamb that was led to the slaughter. And he's carrying that cross to, the, to be crucified. And notice Isaiah tells us he didn't open his mouth. In verse seven, but he did open his mouth. We know that he talked during his trial, his interrogation, even when he 's going up to the mountain to his death, he said some things, but he didn 't say it in the way one would expect let 's look at a few of those in John eighteen, for example. You know, this is an innocent man. Think about it. If you were on trial for something crazy like murder, you would be begging, pleading your innocence. You'd be, I want out of here. Stop. That's not what we see from Jesus. What we see is the opposite from Jesus. For example, in John 18, verse 37, Pilate asked him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. And he bore our griefs and our sorrows. Bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do they see his appearance and think, I gotta go to this guy? No, they listen to his voice. This is the word of God. This is Jesus. Jesus. That's the amazing thing. But you read this statement, you have to wonder, well, who in the right mind would say something like this? This is this is crazy. An innocent man, a lamb who understands the father's will, is the most important thing in their life. And this is someone who has dedicated his whole life to God, because of because Isaiah thirty fifty three. Excuse me, it's pointing out that Jesus is not speaking. He's not speaking in rebellion. He's not speaking out of coward. He's not backing down. As Nate suggested this morning, as Nate said, he is taking of the cup. He's drinking the cup. He's take, He's going to the slaughter silently. There's power in that, and the sacrifice Jesus gives is very similar to what the Jewish people had to give. Look at Leviticus chapter four. Leviticus chapter 4, the Jewish people when they sinned had to go through a lot and they had to give a sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4 verses 32-35 give in detail what they had to do. It says, "If if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they Kill the burnt offering, verse 34. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood on the base of the altar, and all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on top of the Lord's food offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. We read that, and that's pretty gruesome. That's pretty bloody. Most of us wouldn't want to do that. I'm sure there's some weirdos out there that would, but I'm sure most of us wouldn't. We don't like that, but that's what they had to do. And they had to do it consistently if they were devoted to God. But we wouldn't just know that looking at that on the surface and just, just reading that. That sacrifice is very bloody. But there's a difference, you see, between Leviticus 4 and what we see in God's sacrifice and Jesus' crucifixion. For the Jews slaughtering that lamb, what do we see? We see there's remorse. There's a change of heart. We can't see the heart like God can. We can't see what they actually did, but we can hear their confession. We can see that change of heart. But then we read, for example, in John 19, verse 1, and we read what? We read Jesus getting beaten and spit on and mocked and just flogged. And when he's innocent and Pilate says you should let him go, what do they say? They say, crucify him, crucify him. In John 19, verse 16, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Verse 18, there they crucified him. Still a sacrifice. Still a sacrifice, just a little different. Still a pure lamb. Just not slaughtered and killed in a ritualistic way or fashion. And Jesus sacrificed what we see. We really see the evil and the heart of humanity we don't see that even when we read necessarily Leviticus 4, but we do when we read the Gospels and all the more reason why we need the truth and why we need the good news and why we need the living water in our life. You need those things. and we look at Isaiah 53, look at verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken from the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, think about all the violence done to him, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He tells the truth. He is the truth. And you think our story ends there, but it doesn't. Because the human heart is so evil, that's why we needed that sacrifice. Our sins, our faults, those are the lashes on his back, the nails in his hands and feet. But What's the point if he remains dead if he remains dead then the evil that kills him is the evil that wins and so we read Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 11 and it says yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offering his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. It's hard to read that. And from God, the Father's perspective, to realize it was the Lord's will, verse 10, to crush his servant, his faithful servant, who acted Wisely, It's hard to read that and, and to think, how could this, the faithful God of the Bible, how would he allow a bad thing to happen to, to the innocents, to innocent? Would he do that? And the answer is yes. Yes, obviously he would if some greater good would be served. And that greater good is important to note. If that is love. Love is the greatest good that we as humans can realize. And God is love. He is the greatest good there is, and he will always stand for the greatest good that is. Including sacrificing his son, His Son, whom he loves, because he loves us. Placing our evil on his servant, his son, Jesus, because God is love. But how is God satisfied, verse 11? Does he, does he like seeing? Does he delight in seeing the innocent destroyed? No. But does he want to see the many, as it says, the many saved? And the answer is yes, yes. When the Jewish people would offer burnt sacrifices, for example, the peace offering, in Leviticus 3, verse 5, it says the smoke would be a pleasing aroma to God. God is satisfied when he sees someone who's dedicated. He sees peace and, and thankfulness. He sees a heart after God. In fact, the guilt offering was meant that the Lord was satisfied and the, was, forgave the offender. God looks down and is satisfied, not in the evil, but in his purpose being fulfilled in Jesus' sacrifice. So that what? So verse 11, so that the many, so that we can be accounted righteous. Jesus' sacrifice was fulfilled, but it has to be paired with verse 10. His days were prolonged, and we see that prolonging in Mark 16. Mark 16, verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus' resurrection. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to him, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, and he has risen. And then you compare that to Acts 1 when he ascends. And Acts 1, if you want to turn over there, look at verses 3 through 11. And Acts 1, verses 3 through 11. Jesus ascends here, and notice some of the details. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them During forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they all come together, they asked him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel?" And he said to them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority in verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you on this on the earth and when he had said these things as they were looking on he was lifted as as he went he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold Two men were st- stood by them in white robes, verse 11, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's sitting there at the right hand of the throne of God. What we see is that he is God. We see his name, I am, is exalted above all other names. What we see is that he is the Lamb of God. And Isaiah 53 verse 12 says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the greatest servant that sits at the Father's right hand That's God as the victor. And he gets everything. He deserves everything. He deserves our praise. He deserves our whole lives. And as believers, because Jesus, what, poured out his soul, as it says there, to death and bore our sins, we get to share in that spoil. We get to share in that victory as humble servants. And that means being consistently devoted to him for eternity. Jesus beat death. And that sting is no longer there. We need to start thinking in terms of eternity. We need to start thinking that way. It says Jesus poured out his soul. And so the question, the question I want to leave you with tonight, are you pouring out your soul to God? Because he deserves your whole soul. Not just in this life, but for eternity. That's the eternal pouring out of the soul. So I want to encourage you to live as Jesus did, wholly and consistently devoted to God. We live, we breathe, we suffer, we rejoice, all of it for Him. We are born again, and we are born to serve God. But before we can be born again, we have to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you want to become a Christian today and be baptized, and come forward now, and we stand and we sing.